last 24 hours, um, there have been two separate shootings. And the last number I saw was 29 people dead and dozens injured. And uh, in the last week or so, I don't, I don't know what the number is, but it just seems like now we're, we're becoming callous to it because it's happening so often. I read a statistic uh, probably a couple months ago that suggested that there has been some type of domestic violence perpetrated on groups of people <coughs> on average of once per week since the beginning of the year. And to be a thoughtful individual... Um, I want to be real careful um, because politicizing it hasn't helped. And it ain't gonna. Because there are all kinds of simplistic ways of dealing with it. The problem is, is that what's being said is the issue isn't the issue. It's a heart issue. Can I just say that? And I think you would agree that as we look around in the world today, there is something horribly, horribly wrong. And um, I think we have to pause for a moment and pray for the heart of not just ourselves and our families and our church and our city, although we should do all those things, but also our country and the world. Lord Jesus, you see all of this and I know you're grieved. And I know that um, the efforts that we, we make um, to try to change the world ultimately will fail if you're not a part of it. And while I'm deeply affected by all of it, I, um, I also pray, Lord, that you would bring comfort onto uh, the families who are the victims in ways that human beings cannot. I pray, too, Lord, that as a country we, we would seek justice and not vengeance. And Lord, I pray that um, while I want the heart of our country to change at the same time I recognize that it is made up of individuals and I recognize that um, I can't change anyone else's heart and I can simply pray for my own and so at the start of this um, and I pray Lord that you would begin with me and as other people around the room are joining that prayer, that you would hear us say, oh God, start with me. We often say that the world doesn't need another church. Tulsa doesn't need another church, but it needs a whole lot of people acting like Jesus. And that comes down to each one of us choosing to be present with you, allowing ourselves to be changed and shaped by you. And that we would um, very humbly allow you to do that. And so even as we um, pause in this worship, I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would come and do the work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. Um, in this series on Acts, which uh, has been um, a little bit mind-blowing, I think, for a lot of us. Uh, we've been talking about this in our staff meetings and just, <clears throat> you know, you can read through the scripture and you can read through things dozens and dozens of times and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit begins to highlight new things for you. That's one of the joys of, of actually going to the text. And I think that's um, good for all of us. Um, last week, if you'll remember, we were introduced to a significant group of, of individuals, uh, seven men. Uh, I, I would say these are probably the most significant um, males or groups of people mentioned um, since the disciples were introduced to us in, in the Gospels. Um, but they're generally referred to as deacons and uh, um, we'd get their names and, and they're, assigned to the, they're assigned to the food pantry ultimately. They're on the hospitality crew, and that's what they're, they're asked to do, and uh, you can read about it. It's in um, Acts 6 and 7, uh, specifically the first part of Acts 6. <clears throat> and then something happens, though, um, at the end of that chapter and into chapter 7. There's a conflict between the Jesus followers and the temple, and it escalates, as it often does with human beings, to violence. And um, Stephen, one of these seven deacons, becomes the first martyr of the church. He is stoned by the, um, uh, by the temple in, a, in an illegal execution. So um, you'll recall um, that, that Stephen is assigned um, to this role, but that one of the criteria that we find in the text is that they were uh, the the people who were choosing these seven individuals were supposed to find men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. You can find it in Acts six three, and um, oh, by the way, there's um, some artwork of Saint Stephen. Notice how he's looking up and he's seeing Jesus in heaven. That's what the text says. It's fascinating. Anyway, we have these seven um, men in particular that are full of the spirit and wisdom. And hey, by the way, I want to make, make a quick pause here. Um, those seven were men out of Jewish custom, not because it was prescriptive for the church forever. Okay, you just need to hear me say that. Uh, Jewish custom was that males would do this sort of thing and not the females. Um, so let me just say up front, if you're a female and you're full of God's grace and wisdom, let's talk. I got stuff you could do. It'd be great, <laughs> okay? I'm just, I'm just gonna put that one out there. So keep that in mind. Let's talk about that. So today we're gonna pick up the story, and I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, um, as we begin the story in Acts chapter eight, that's where we're gonna be. I invite you to turn there or to punch that into your, um, your digital book of choice uh, to look at Acts chapter eight. And I want you to notice a couple of things as we start reading this. First of all, the circumstances actually deteriorate. Yay. <laughs> they get worse. And then we get to see an, another one of these seven men in action, a man named Philip. And he's, he's a fascinating character study. And I'm going to be um, talking about him today and very likely going to pick up another part of his story next week too. I think it's really interesting. So uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. And we find that there is a certain somebody on the scene. Here it is in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, approved of their killing him. Um, let me just make a little quick note here. The, 
the synagogue, the, the church where this took place, was the, uh, typically where we would find expats, people who were in Jerusalem from other countries finding a place to worship. And so it was very likely that a man named Saul of Tarsus, which was from uh, a distance away, would likely have worshiped there. And we see that the, the, the people who were stoning uh, Stephen actually put their cloak at his feet, and then we find that he actually approved of their killing. He approved of the escalation in, into violence. Okay, so circumstances just get worse. Here it is. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which is really interesting because didn't Jesus say, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Okay, this, that's what we call foreshadowing, and here we have a little bit more of that, okay? And so they were, uh, uh, the, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Wow. But then I want you to see the very last line. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So, situation gets a whole lot worse. Persecution isn't fun. Um, and yet, God redeems it. Now, I want you to remember something we talked about last week. Um, last week, we, we talked about this idea that um, when we're in the presence of God, one of, one, one of the things that can often happen there is that God begins to expand our vision a little bit. Because things are not always as they seem. So here we have persecution, which would you agree is kind of a bad thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is not fun at all. And people are getting dragged off into prison, and it's almost like a, this police state is going on. It's this horrible thing that, that's happening. And yet, they preached the word of God wherever they went. So in, light, in, in spite of the circumstances, the word of God actually spread. And you need that larger, expanded view to understand that. So case in point, a um, number of years ago, uh, actually, um, I remember because it was two weeks after September 11th, 2001. <clears throat> the, uh, the economy at the time was a bit shaky, and then 9-11 um, actually happened. About two weeks later, it was a Monday, I walked into my job. I worked for an office furniture manufacturer, and by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 749 uh, um, of my friends and myself were all let go. And I remember going, well, I remember the initial thing was something I can't repeat out loud because it was really scary. What are we going to do, the economy? And at, at the end of the day, though, as I was talking with my wife, I realized I really didn't enjoy that job an awful lot. And my goodness, the view began to expand a little bit. Maybe this isn't such a bad thing after all. Turns out, less than a week later, I found a job that paid me more money and was actually 25 minutes closer to my house. And there I was all worried about it. You understand what I'm saying? Now, just because that was my set of circumstances doesn't mean that you've had that same thing. I understand that. But for me, that was a moment where I understood this idea. That sometimes when you are trying to be in the presence of God and really truly, truly trying to follow him, you begin to understand that what I see in front of me may not be the entire story. Are you understanding this? So 
yes, there's persecution, and yet God redeems it. That's what he does. He redeems things for us. And so consequently, um, the word of God was preached wherever they went. Okay, so please understand that. The presence expands our view. Moving on, Philip, here's this individual that we met in chapter 6, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Keep that in mind. Signs, paid attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So, was there, so, so there was great joy in that city. Uh, yeah, I, I, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, how many of you would find a great deal of joy seeing that? Yes, we don't have that stuff around anymore. This is a very good thing. Um, so Jesus shows up with Philip and begins cleaning house. It's amazing. So keep this in mind, though. And we have to go back to this because we talked about this with Stephen before, and I think this is so important. Philip was on the food distribution team. He's part of the food pantry. And yet, God had more in mind, like signs and wonders and preaching for him. And the same thing that I said last week, I'm going to repeat because this is important. Don't confuse your assignment with your calling. Because your calling can be um, manifest in a lot of different assignments. Some of the um, best ministry, if I can call it that, that I was um, able to do, that I was privileged to do, was when I wasn't a pastor at all. And I was a grad student. Um, that That was an amazing part of my life. But my calling and my assignment are two different things. So keep that in mind. His assignment was to work in the food pantry. His calling was to preach the word. And they did, he did it such a way with signs and wonders that underscored all of it. Really important. Oh, and by the way, where was this? Where, where did this actually take place? Samaria. Half-breeds. For those of you who are Harry Potter fans, mudbloods, right? Sumerians, not really. Not really cool if you're Jewish. And yet Philip finds himself in this place in Samaria and there he is preaching the word, and God does some amazing things among those Sumerians. Wait, what? It's astonishing. Keep in mind that the Spirit of God works in some very unlikely of places. In fact, I would say, if you think that God can't work there, my gut tells me Jesus says, hang on a second. Hold my beverage, <laughs> right? Well, let me show you. So now, um, Luke makes, makes a bit of a shift and, uh, in his story, and he tells a story, um, a little story of two Simons. And it's important because I think he employs a literary device meant to get our attention. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to sketch it out for you, and then we're going to talk about what it, might, what it might mean, because I think this will be interesting. So we start by meeting the first Simon. Remember, here's Philip, he's in Samaria, he's doing signs and wonders, he's preaching, there's amazing things happen, and then um, Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed. Remember, what does it say? Gave them their what? Tension. And what did they do when Philip was doing his thing? They listened to what he said, paying attention, right? 
So there's a conflict going on here. Gave, them, uh, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. In fact, I think if I remember correctly, um, it's Megas Dynamis Theos, which just sounds cool, right? It's like maybe some professional wrestler type. I don't know. <clears throat> they followed him because he had mazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Okay, so this is the first Simon that we're introduced to. In whatever his power or his source, he had a following, and yet we know from the previous verse that Philip had made this impact. So let's keep reading. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Wow. This is a big shift. So first Simon, he's got a rep. He's got some street cred. And even he says, mm, yeah, yeah, what this guy Philip is doing, I, I, I'm astonished. And he begins to follow him, believes, and he's baptized. Right? But then the other Simon, Simon Peter, comes on the scene. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, of all places, had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers uh, there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now stop right there because I think this is important that we see this. It illustrates a very familiar pattern that we're finding throughout the book of Acts in, in that there is this moment of belief in Jesus, there is baptism in the belief in Jesus, and yet there seems to be this second work where there is uh, a baptism of sorts in the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? So we have this, this two-part process where you have this moment where you believe in Jesus, but then there's another moment when the Holy Spirit comes upon, upon them, and it typically results in the fact that somebody prays for you and lays on hands. I'm going to tell you right now, that one's jacking with my theology, because that was not something I was aware of uh, for the longest time. <clears throat> now, we have this little tucked-in um, story about Simon Peter and what was happening. And then the, the attention goes back to Simon the sorcerer. Um, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted in on the action, didn't he? Just a little bit. And then Peter sets him straight. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then I love Simon's response. He answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So, um, Peter puts down the smack. And what does Simon do? 
He takes it to heart. He says, no, I don't want that to happen to me. I want you to to see something. I want you to see this illustrated. You know how much I like pictures, right? So here's kind of what it looks like. You have this um, verses 9 through 13 where we see Simon the sorcerer. And then verses 14 through 17, we hear about Simon Peter. And then Acts 18 through 24 is Simon the sorcerer again. Do you see how it's kind of tucked in there? And if you look at any one of those verses, 14 through 17, you'll see no sign of the sorcerer at all, or even the words. It is a separate thought. This is a literary device called Inclusio, and we find Luke using this an awful lot. And so what you have is a story within a story. There's several famous um, stories that are like this, that use this device. And it's generally employed by the author to get you to pay attention. He's saying, there's something here you must understand. And if you were an ancient reader, you would pick up on this because not just the biblical writers were using this, but most Greek writers would use something like this. It's a very common, common type of thing. So we have this little story within a story that is trying to make a point. And here Luke, I think, deals with a source of power, namely the Holy Spirit. Now obviously this makes some sense to us. But remember a couple of chapters ago when we had that really uncomfortable story about Ananias and Sapphira? Remember the ones who sold the field and they said that it was a certain amount but that really was more than that and they kept a little portion of it and then they put it in front of the disciples saying, here, go ahead, distribute this, which is really a good thing, but they lied about the amount. Remember that? And then they both dropped dead? What? I mean, it's, it's just, ah, I just I hate that story. But that story dealt with something very important in the early church, and here's what it is. It was the threat of hypocrisy, remember? And even Jesus said, beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Because it's so damaging, hypocrisy is. And so they dealt with it, and of course Jesus kind of dealt with it in a, you know, the Holy Spirit dealt with it in a very um, dramatic way, would you agree? Yeah. But the story that we see here, with Simon the sorcerer, deals with another threat. And I think it's important that we understand this. It's the threat of exchange. And here's what I mean by that. If the Holy Spirit can be bought, it's not a gift. And if the Holy Spirit is not a gift, then it is, by definition, corruptible. Do you see that? If it's something that can be bought and sold, if it is a transaction then there's no gift about it. Does this make sense? As such, it would be corruptible. God could be bought and the rich would only be able to afford it. And clearly, that was not the mission of Jesus at all. Are you with me? Paul, later, the man who's persecuting the church, becomes a Christian. We're going to hear about that next week. But he later writes that the Holy Spirit decides who gets what. And it's not based on a person's bank account. It's not based on their status. It's based on who they are and how God chooses to to gift it. So no wonder Peter puts the smack down here. He's like, no, 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 you need to understand. This is not about transaction. This is not about exchange. This is about a relationship whereby God may give you a gift. Because he's God. Not because you have the power and ability to be able to pay for it. 
Anyone, are you following with, with me on that? Because as soon as we start thinking that this is transactional, that's when the whole thing falls apart. In fact, I would argue that's probably what happened in the Catholic Church right before the Reformation, because you could pray for your uh, relatives to get out of purgatory by paying for it. It was a practice called indulgences. Great case in point. It's transactional. That's, that's not right. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Okay, so keep that in mind. So he's dealt with hypocrisy dramatically, and here he is um, dealing with this idea of transaction. It's not transaction. It's relationship. Not transaction. It's relationship. But there's one other piece here that I think is worth puzzling over just for a couple, couple of moments here at the end. I think this is really important. I want you to look back at verse 23. Peter says to him, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Quick question. I mean, this is fascinating. This is a fascinating statement. He says, hey, let me pay you because I want to be able to do that thing that you're doing. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like one of these like self-help seminars. It's, it's not like that. You know, do you have a book that I could buy? Um, he says, no. He says, you need to repent of this because I can see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. How did he know that? How did he make this diagnosis? How, how did he do that? Because that's a little odd, wouldn't you think? I mean, how is it that you know this? I mean, because maybe it's greed. Why didn't he say greed? He didn't say greed. He says you're bitter. Mmm, bitter. And the text doesn't say how he knew. And by the way, wasn't Simon just recently a believer and baptized? Wait a second. So you mean Christians can be bitter and full of sin? <gasps> surprise, surprise. I'm just saying, let me offer a thought. I want you to notice his title um, back in verse 9 and 10. First of all, Simon boasted that he was great and that they called him the great power of God, right? And yet, even though he had all this greatness and all this power, he was still surprised by Philip. Fascinating to me. Let me suggest this here. Sorcery is fundamentally rooted in power and control. Um, without doing a long... Um, deep dive into sorcery. We're not talking about Hogwarts and Harry Potter and all that kind of thing. That's not what we're talking about. Sorcery from a biblical standpoint is more or less dealing with spiritual issues from a position of, of, of power and control. So the idea here is to have power and control over spiritual forces, over natural elements, over other people, and frankly over circumstances, okay? So when we talk about sorcery, it's, it's tapping into some type of spiritual power in order to have, have some control over your environment or over the things that you're engaged with day in and day out. And I would suggest that the quest for power is often rooted in pain. Almost always. Something has happened, and I don't want that to ever happen again. And so I will do whatever I can tap into whatever resource in order to protect myself from it. And I have seen this time and time again. Usually, people will resort to a couple of, of familiar things. W one is, is violence. That's, that's, a, that's a whole lot of power and control real quick. Second, um, they can have power and control over others through uh, money. 
Those are the two big ones. There's other ones too. There's manipulation and there's blackmail and there's all kinds of things. But typically they come down to violence and they come down to money, having power and control over other things. In this case, in the ancient times, for this individual, it was sorcery. This idea of power and pain um, became aware to me. Some of you know that um, I work um, part-time for um, a website that does ministry placements around the country. I do interviewing for them. And I get to talk to pastors um, all over the country. And uh, I, I was introduced to a man. I did an interview with him. And he was a worship pastor who was recently fired from his job. And he was applying to be a senior pastor. And it became very apparent to me that the reason why he wanted to be a senior pastor is because he never wanted to be fired again. You tracking with me? The pain caused him to pursue power. Completely unqualified for the job, but very desirous of it. And I understand that. Because power, the quest for power, the desire for power is often rooted in pain, almost always. <clears throat> Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. It's all rooted in that idea of bitterness. Does that make sense? So there's this thing that happens within our heart when we're hurt often or if we're angry and things become very bitter and it, it changes us and it moves us into rage, into anger, into brawling and slander. Remember, there's that thing of violence and malice, which is another form of, of, of power. And they're all attempts at being able to control the environment. Okay? So we know this person is a sorcerer. We know that there's a, a power issue here. And the first thing he wants to do is he likes, can I buy some of that? And Peter says, I can see you're full of bitterness. The prescription is relatively easy to come to when you understand the dynamics that are often in play, right? Keep that in mind. Now, in contrast, God's Spirit, the one that uh, Peter and John were doling out, it's not about power. What's it about? It's about love. Does this make sense? You've got to get the order correctly. You don't have the power in order to love. You love and then receive the power in order to do it, to do it more. The Spirit of God, um, this kind of hit me right now as I'm talking about it. The Spirit, the Spirit's power, the presence of God, the power of God, ultimately here, is an amplifier of God's love. It's an amplifier. That's what it is. And so it's really about God's love towards other people, it is always at the direction of the Holy Spirit, not vice versa. And it's almost always to take back something that hell has stolen. Lame, paralyzed, um, those who are um, afflicted by spiritual forces, all of those things, every last one of them, those are things that hell has stolen from us. And so the Spirit of God comes in power to take it back. We've got to get our minds around that. And again, remember Simon's response, oh, pray for me so that doesn't happen to me. Yeah. I want that type of response too when I blow it. Look, um, 
It's about love. We know that. And I'm just, I'm just thinking to myself here as we're kind of wrapping up. Maybe there's something about this that's resonating just a little bit with you. I don't know. And maybe you find yourself a little bit angry. Are you snapping at the people around you a little bit? Are you imagining arguments? Have you had those arguments with people in, in your head and they're not there? Yeah, you're giggling uncomfortably because I know you've done it, right? Yeah. Are you ready to fight? Do you wish harm on someone else? Well, that one's painful, isn't it? Maybe here's a better question. Where are you seeking power and control? Maybe you've got a little bit of bitterness. And here's the question. Can the Lord deal with that? Will you let him deal with that with you? And my other question, and the one that I ask myself is, look, if I, if I allow the bitterness to take root, what else am I missing out on? Because let me tell you, when you've got bitterness and you're captive to sin, and you're seeking power, and you're seeking control, it's exhausting. Because all of your energy is on the problem. It's, all, it's always directed at acquiring more to try to protect yourself, and you're building it up, and you're building it up, and you're building it up, and you know what? You can't ever build up enough. Ever. It's impossible to do. And so consequently, you expend all of this energy, and so what else are you missing out on? How about peace? Joy? Kindness? Hmm. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to do this. I just really think that we need to pause for a second and say, what else, what else are we missing if we're trying to pursue all the power and all the control? And, and what's driving that? What is it about it? And can we be like be like Simon and say, oh, pray for me so that what you, what you have said doesn't happen to me. Um, like every single week, uh, we'll be in the back over here ready to pray. Um, here's the thing, though. <laughs> Maybe you're, the issue that you're facing today doesn't have to deal with bitterness at all. Maybe there's something else. Hey, we'd like to pray for that, too. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, because sometimes we're a little afraid to get up out of our seat during worship time and go back and pray because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. Um, I don't want other people to know that I have bitterness. Bitterness is one of those things, guess what? They already know. I'm just saying. But that's, that's not the point. And I... It might be another reason why you're going to come up and you just need some prayer. Maybe it's just one of those, maybe you had one of those weeks. I don't know. But if a man who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit can take the admonishment from Peter and turn around and say, will you pray for me? You can do it too. I'm just saying. And uh, we would love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Pray with you. We're not really praying for you. We're kind of praying with you.
And we want to do that. Um, there's no pressure, of course. Nobody's going to pressure you to do that, but it is available. I want you to know that. There's this, this story of, of Philip, and he's doing this amazing thing. And this tale of two Simons that is trying to teach us something about the love of God and how it is contrary to virtually everything else you know. It's a little uncomfortable sometimes trying to choose the way of love versus the way of power and control. I know I struggle with it. I'll be honest. I do. Most of us do at some level. But when you choose to be in the presence of God, things begin to change. Your perspective begins to expand your viewpoint just a little bit. You begin to hear God speaking to you. Not just through his word, although he does do that, but also just directly to you. Believe it or not, the Bible doesn't have any verse in it at all that deals with how, how to handle um, political comments on Facebook. <laughs> so sometimes we have to go to the Father and say, oh God, how do I deal with this? <laughs> and yet, God speaks to us. And he talks to us. And he guides us and directs us. And yes, sometimes he deals with sin, but I'll tell you from personal experience, it's never condemning, it's always convicting. And the difference is, oh, David, I got something so much better for you. I need that. And so I just want to offer that to you, that to get into the presence of God and to really hear his voice um, makes all the difference in the world. And you find yourself not wanting or needing power and control like you may, may have once in your past. There's some peace and there's some rest. And God wants to offer that to you freely as a gift. So uh, Pastor James and I will be in the back. We'd be delighted to pray with you. And you know what? And if that makes you uncomfortable, you can always catch us after service. We ain't got no problem praying then either. We just like praying around here. So we're going to continue to do it. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to come to a pastor to do that. You got somebody in the congregation that's wise, that you think is wise? Ask them. Knowing some of the wise people in this church, they will have no problem praying with you. They'll love it. <laughs>